Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods, and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. What's up, amigos? It's Chris Project Maker Show, episode 33, coming to you live from New York City. And we've got an exciting show for you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for staying up with me late night on Thursday. I'm sorry for the late start for all of you tuning in live, but I had a late night teaching on court and I just got back home. So I'm excited for the show tonight. My co-host Sammy, the Academy Dog, is taking a rest. He's sleeping on the couch, so hopefully he won't make too much noise and we can have a good discussion. But tonight, I know many of you are excited. A lot of you reached out to me. You were interested in talking about the Wayne Bryan letter to the USDA that's now going on maybe eight years old, but it's an incredible letter. It's all over the internet. If you haven't read it, you probably should. It's a maybe controversial piece of, of uh, you know, essay or, or piece of critical analysis of USDA and and also some other things in American tennis. But what I want to do is, what Wayne does is he goes point by point through some of his analysis and his viewpoints, his perspective on American tennis and on the USDA's role in American tennis. And he talks about junior development and U10 tennis and the U10 mandate and the U10 initiative and things like that. So I thought it'd be really cool if we went through it point by point and I'll give you my take on Wayne's take, my take on Wayne's thoughts. And there are points where we agree and there are points where I don't agree with Wayne. Although I have a lot of respect for Wayne and I will admit that I actually don't, you know, I haven't followed Wayne that much uh, in terms of his junior development philosophy and his coaching. But recently I took one of his courses through a DVD. I was doing some CEUs for USPTA. So I actually took one of his presentations and courses at, um, I believe it was USPTA high performance development workshop. And it was fantastic. I was really impressed with his charisma and his intelligence and his insight and he seemed like a great motivator on the court too which I didn't I didn't realize how dynamic he he is or he was or is on the tennis court as a I can imagine him as a coach or a dad being an incredible motivator and uh being a, a an incredible tennis I can imagine him being an incredible tennis parent I think the Bryan brothers are very lucky that he that he was there for them, and I can see why they had so much success. You know, I have a theory that 
tennis parents who have done the whole junior development cycle, taken their kids from a young age all the way to the pros or a very high level college and professional tennis, I believe that those parents have incredible insight and I have tremendous respect for those types of parents. And when I look for mentors for myself and people to study with, I always look for coaches who who parented their own player to a high level or they were maybe a, fam- a family member who parented their child to a high level, like, for example, Tony Nadal did that, because I think it gives a coach a tremendous depth of experience, like maybe like nothing else, because it's one thing to take a player for a year or two and it's another thing to take a player from five or six or from a baby all the way to 18 or 20 or 25 to a professional tennis career or a top college career. And I have just tremendous respect because as a parent, I have four kids myself. I know how difficult it is to raise a champion athlete, to raise a champion in anything, really. I have tremendous respect for parents who, who do that and who sacrifice and who commit so much time and energy uh, to to building a, a champion child. So wh- when I see parents who are doing that and who are also willing to share their experience, their experience and their knowledge, I always try to learn from those specific types of coaches. And it looks like to me like Wayne is one of those people, very special person with a very special insight and knowledge. Like I said, don't agree with everything that uh, Wayne. Uh, every viewpoint that he adopts in in this essay, but man, what um, you can tell that this guy's got a very high intelligence, high IQ, and he's got a lot of creative insight into the game and into the state of American tennis. So I like to go through that uh, point by point with you guys. If you're logging in live, if tuning in live to the show on Facebook, then we can have a discussion about it, and I'm happy to do that. I also have some mailbox questions that I got this week. One question is on footwork. I got another question about U18 development. So perhaps if those viewers or those fans in the audience are live, they can also tune in and, and uh, we can have a discussion about some of the mailbox questions too. But Let's get into it because the essay is its an incredible essay. I don't know if you guys have read it online. If you haven't, look, just search Google, uh, Google search Wayne Bryan letter to the USDA. It, it's circa 2012 now, so it's been about eight years. I guess it's been about eight years since the USDA mandate was put into place. It's been about 11 years or going on 11 years, the ITF mandate uh, for... Uh, red, you know, red, orange, green, under ten or under ten tennis has can't be played with the yellow ball. So we're in an interesting time frame where the whole world is maybe reflecting a bit on, you know, it has it's been a good movement for tennis, and people are. I, I don't know if people are regretting the the mandate, but people certainly at, at ten years, about ten years or so in. It's a good time for reflection and analysis and consideration of what's working and what's not working. And, and how, uh, from, a, from an American perspective, of course, uh, as an American coach, 
we have a lot of questions in this country right now. How do we develop more champion players? You see Sophia Kennan in the finals of the Australian, and uh, it, it's an example of how successful and powerful we are in the U.S. with our female players. But on the male side, we're really struggling. We haven't had a Grand Slam winner since, I believe, the 2003 U.S. Open champion who, that was Andy Roddick. So we're going on a tremendous, we're on a, this will be our 18th year, going into our, well, 17th year, and then 2021, 18th year. That will equal the drought that they had in Spain from 1975 to 1993. So I, I wrote a book on Spanish tennis where we talked about the history of Spanish tennis. And I believe their drought for a male Grand Slam winner was... 1975 to 1993, and that that drought was ended by Sergio Bruguera, the great Sergio Bruguera of Spain, and he won in 1993 and 1994 back-to-back -back French Open championships. And here in the U.S., we're going on a similarly tre tremendously long drought where it's been now 17 years and... We will, we will equal the Spanish drought if we get to 2021 without a male Grand Slam winner. So we're very strong on the female side, much stronger than Spain, by the way. But we're struggling on the male side. So people naturally have questions about what can we do for American tennis? How can we make American tennis better? What should be the role of the USTA and player development and questions like that? And those are some of the issues that Wayne Bryan talks about in his essay. So let's dig into the essay a little bit. I will try to read some of it uh, point by point. It goes in a bullet point or a number point format. And for some of you who are not familiar with the essay, I'm going to read some of the passages. And also, I figure if you're listening to the podcast, not, not live, obviously, uh, you can get more out of the program that way if I explain to you what exactly Wayne's talking about before we discuss it. So, number one in Wayne's letter, first, as a preface, what he says is, <laughs> he's a funny dude, Wayne, and he says, let's chop some wood, and this will not be a formal submission. So, the essay is very scattered. It's, it's, I don't it seems like an ADHD essay. It, it's not edited at all, and it's a bit convoluted in parts, and it's just basically spontaneous. It looks like it was spontaneously written, uh, stream of consciousness style, and Wayne didn't bother to, to edit or, or, do, it, or do any sort of uh, formal uh, polishing of, of his thoughts. So it's just straight from the gut or straight from the, the brain, and... You can either like, you can either love Wayne for that, or, or you can hate it. But I'll try to parse Wayne's thoughts when if they get convoluted, and I will try to explain what I think his perspective is if it's a little confusing. But basically, he says, "Okay, I'm just gonna." He says it himself. I'm gonna roll this stuff out as fast as I possibly can. You can imagine him sitting late at night at his his laptop or computer, and he's like, all right, here we go. I'm going to just let this all off my chest. Obviously, Wayne has a lot of passion, and he has a lot of passion for this subject. So 
He says, I'm going to roll this stuff out to you off the top of my head, and I hope it's helpful, and I hope you find yourself nodding in agreement every once in a while. So his first thrust, you know, article number one, or issue number one that he chooses to analyze and talk about is the, the mandate. You know, the mandate that in the USDA, everyone under 10 need, uh, cannot play with the yellow ball, and this new initiative that the USDA was first rolling out around 2012 or so, which is the red, orange, green, or U10 program, where all across the country we would have uh, American kids playing with uh, different, with low compression colored balls. So he says uh, the USDA has built a half mile bridge over a one mile river. Jump Street is age six, not 10. And this is one of his main thrusts in the first part of the essay is that young children, I have this dialed up my laptop so I can read it to you guys. Basically what he's, he's saying is that the whole initiative, I'll, I'll go a step, maybe a step further, I'll say the whole initiative should have been branded U6 or maybe U8. I used to say U8 in the past, and Wayne's arguing that it should be branded as a U6 initiative. And I've, I argued on the last podcast that I think that would better serve the children and also be better in, in terms of grabbing children when they're, they're younger and trying to get young kids under six or, you know, whatever you want, whatever you guys want, if you want to call it under eight, uh, having them play with the low compression colored balls and trying to transition kids who are older, like let's say eight, nine, ten, trying to get them to yellow ball a little sooner rather than focusing on the age of 10. So Wayne thinks that that is too late to to train kids with a red, in a red, orange, green environment. Here's some of his argument. He says, ask AYSO soccer, ask, look at T-ball, softball, look at when kids start skateboarding. I'm reading and paraphrasing just a little bit here. He says, look, look at incredible NBA stars. They're playing on the asphalt courts at six, not 10. Inner city kids are doing these amazing dance moves at six, not 10. He goes on with many examples of how kids are, the best kids are starting younger and younger. And so he feels that the whole initiative in the U.S. should have been focused more on the age of six. And I think that's a very good point. I, I tend to agree with him. I used to say U8, but U6 is a little more ambitious because I think those are the really talented kids who are starting that young and playing very well at six years old. Most kids haven't really got into the game at six very much. In my experience, most kids are starting the game seriously between eight and 10. And only the prodigies, the really gifted special kids are, he calls it Jump Street. He says Jump Street is age six, not 10. These are the really special kids. And, and like his own boys were like that. So he, he's speaking from the perspective of a dad who had prodigies in his own household, in his own family. And so I think it's a legitimate perspective to take. I think certainly for uh, prodigious kids, for kids who have a lot of talent, I know some of you object to the word talent, but I love that word. Uh, gifted kids, age six is certainly a, a, a good, we'll say benchmark, good, good benchmark age to start thinking about transitioning them to a yellow ball if, if they're talented. 
If you have a child who is more recreational in focus or less gifted, less talented with the hands and eyes and the feet, then certainly you might want to hold back a little bit to seven or eight. You know, I don't like to go much past eight because I think most kids can play with a yellow ball if they're taught well, if they're coached well, um, certainly by that age, and they can compete also with the yellow ball at that age. So that's kind of the model that you see with Little Mo tournament competitions all around the country. We have a Little Mo circuit in the U.S. It's also, it also has a small international um, tournament component to it. We have a, a few Little Mo internationals, but it's mainly an American circuit, and they focus on yellow ball, and we have children as young as you know, seven or eight playing in the, the eight and under division in with the yellow ball. In Little Mo, they also give you a choice uh, of green ball, but I, I think that yellow ball is still doing uh, quite well and is quite popular. But the fact that they give you a choice is a lot nicer than the USDA coming down and in a very heavy-handed way saying that you have to play with a low compression ball. You have to play with a, a red, orange, or, or, or green ball at, at certain ages. So... That's point number one, guys. Let's look at uh, Wayne's point on number two. So Wayne says, number two, champions are not created by million-dollar slick ad campaigns. And the ad campaigns for U10 and Quick Start, I guess it used to be called Quick Start or whatever you want to call it, 10 and under 10 is taught. And now you see with net generation, these, these ad campaigns are very slick, and I'm sure they are costing a tremendous amount of money. I, I don't, I'm sure it's in the millions. I have a lot of doubts about whether that money is well spent, and so does Wayne. So Wayne says, tennis will never grow from Madison Avenue. It grows from Main Street. Main Street. Local parents, local groups of kids getting going, local parks, local schools local clubs, local coaches. Tennis grows from solid and fun and dynamic programming and charismatic parents and coaches and club pros. I, I think that's a very good point, that it's the local environment that grows tennis, grassroots, and it's charismatic leaders and coaches and parents who drive tennis at the local level. And so Wayne is saying that these big marketing, glitzy marketing campaigns coming from the top down, USDA, usually aren't going to pay off very well. I think we see with the net generation, the marketing campaign for net generation, I don't think it's working. I don't know how much it costs. You could probably find out in the USDA's budget line, but it's got to be millions of dollars. And I just think it's probably a complete failure. I, I don't like the net generation campaign. I don't know who's using that. You know, it's supposed, it's supposed to grow the game and help coaches get on the same, uh, with a similar teaching methodology and, and help especially grassroots coaches get going. But I just think that money could have been better used for something else. But, you know, you, you see this a lot from the USDA. They have uh, some big promotions and campaigns that come down the road they're very expensive and a lot of times they don't work out so well so let's move on to number three see what wayne's got for us here number three wayne says 
If you want to help tennis, have your child or your nephew or that girl next door play the great game. I'm not trying to be negative, but all those USDA player development coaches throughout the years, their kids don't play the game. Those administrators telling us about this wonderful U10 initiative, their kids don't play. If they play at all, they are sure not champions. So, my humble opinion is that if you are a good junior coach, you will have multiple great junior players in your program. And if you are a great junior coach, some of those players will be your own children. Looks like you may be quoting another coach there. And this, it's, like I said, the, the essay is not well edited, so it, it's, it's a little bit scattered. Looks like he may have quoted another coach there, but it, it's, he's basically mirroring the, the same point of view. I don't think that's really fair to the USDA, nor do I think it's fair to USDA player development that you have to have a, a child. Later on in the essay, he talks about how none of the USDA player development coaches have trained uh, their own child to be a champion. I don't really think that's a fair way to judge a coach. Now, I started the show saying that I respect greatly, highly, parents who have raised up their own champion um, within their family and, and th those types of coaches. But at the same time, there are also many coaches who are, are wonderful, wonderfully gifted coaches with, with uh, excellent backgrounds and experience, and they, they never coach their own children. Heck, some coaches may not even have their own kids, or their kids might want to do other sports. You know, I really don't think that's fair to judge the USDA harshly like that or based on, on, on that criteria. So... Not, not really fair to USDA player development. And I think USDA player development gets uh, a little bit unfair treatment in this essay, and we'll talk about that a little later on as we go through it. So number four, point number four from Wayne, and we'll try to get through these because it is a very long essay, and I, I don't really know how long, how long it's gonna, how long a podcast and show it's gonna make, but hopefully you guys will st stay with me through it, and maybe it will spur some um, some reflection and thought on your behalf on what how to help the the American game and whether uh, the U10 initiative is a net positive for the for America or, or not for American tennis and I think it's a really good uh, discussion point uh, really good discussion points within within the essay so number four Wayne says the USDA crows that it has gone out and got an input on this U10 initiative from across the country. So this is going back to 2008, where it was such a controversial decision for the USDA to push this. And there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of heated pushback from the coaching community, from parents at the time. It was, it was really a, a heavy-handed and top-down initiative. And many people didn't feel that they were listened to. Now... Things have changed a little where I think most parents and, and children coming into the system, they just, uh, they just assume, they just, they don't know any different. So the major conflict was during the time at 2012, 2013, where you had some kids who were already on yellow ball and USDA wanted them to, to, they wanted to pull them back to green. And USDA started rolling out lots of camps for, talented kids and they did the camps with green ball and so and so there was just a lot of chaos you know around that time when the USA was coming in and mandating 
this for this format for young children. And it seems like some I haven't seen too much of that controversy anymore. We're looking at eight years later here, because I think most people just accept it as as the the law of the land. And many parents who have young children who are not familiar with the history of American tennis, they they may not even realize that there was another option before. But I certainly certainly remember. And I know that many people in the industry remember many parents who have had multiple siblings playing tennis. Remember that that you used to be that you could play with a yellow ball at any age, and it would, there was more freedom for parents to 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 choose when to move their child up up in age division or when when, when tournaments to play and things like that. Now it's more restrictive, and kids are forced. I believe in most sections are forced to play. I believe every section has a a mandate. I know different sections have different rules, but I know that in some sections, like the Southwest, I believe they play with green ball up until 12s or into the 12s division, which I think is, if that's true, I think that's insane. And I know here in New York, the kids are forced to play a, an orange, a, a, a pretty, a, a, they're forced to play an, an orange ball progression that is. Sorry about that, guys. Which is uh, is it's not. Uh, it takes a while to to complete. You know, it's pr pretty intensive, and then they also have to go on through a green ball progression. So, so depending on the section you're in in the U.S., there is uh, a lot of requirements uh, to get to a yellow ball, and parents don't have as much freedom as 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 they used to. So Wayne says. He talks about how it's a large, he has a large email list of irate parents and coaches. And this is going back to 2012 when this was a very controversial and chaotic time. Uh, let's see. He says that there hasn't been a lot of input and that the USDA has been somewhat tone deaf. You know, that, that, is, that is true of the USDA over the years. Now, I've started to get around a lot. I may look young to you guys, but I've been in high-performance coaching business now about 18 years here in New York. And so I'm starting to see the USDA over, over decades, over multiple decades, and I've been closely aligned with USDA player development. I've, I've, I'm a USDA high-performance coach. I, I've taken a lot of continuing education workshops with player development, which have been very valuable to me. In fact, I've had a, I have some good mentors in the USDA, like Paul Lovers and and some of the sports science staff, Mark Kovacs, I've, I've spent a lot of time studying with. So, uh, and, and also some of the, uh, have some friends who are national coaches and people I've learned a lot from uh, some of the national team members there. So, for example, I, I've, I, I've been very fortunate to have Jose Higueras as a mentor and he took me under his wing and I tried to go study with him whenever possible at his ranch in Palm Springs. And over the years, I've just learned a tremendous amount from him. I spent time in Boca. I spent time in uh, Lake Nona at the new facility. Um, so USDA has been very, very good to me in terms of helping me with my continuing education, in terms of providing me with mentors. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. And at the same time, I tried to be honest and objective about where I think USDA, and in particular, player development. I don't know as much about 
all the other parts of the or the other arms of the organization. But I know player development fairly well from all the interaction that I've had with them. And I, I try to be objective about what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And we'll talk about that a little bit because I think that Wayne is unfairly critical of player development. In fact, he argues that we should get rid of player development completely, like knock out their entire budget, which I think, you know, it's an idea, but I think player development definitely serves a valuable purpose as long as they don't step on all of the toes of, of high-performance coaches who are working in the trenches, in the field, and as long as they work cooperatively with the, the, the tennis coaching community, I think they can serve a valuable role. They just have to be careful uh, with with uh, um, you know managing managing that role. They they don't want to. Uh, in the past, they have sometimes stepped on us pretty hard and pushed us pushed us high performance coaches out of the way. And in, in general, sometimes they don't listen well to the community and and to the needs of parents and and children and and to the the the, the interests of coaches. So I think. Uh, actually, in recent years, the player development has become much, much better at working cooperatively with with coaches and with Amer- this is in the U.S. with American uh, high performance coaches and trying to come up with better ways to recruit and help talented American children. I think player development has had a lot of success stories in the past eight years. Although we still don't have a Grand Slam champion for the men, we've had a lot of really good players coming through USDA player development on the female side and we have some pretty good pretty good men from the initial crops of juniors coming through the system and you can see some of those guys on tour now like uh, like Francis TFO and, and others so you know I think uh, actually in the last eight years the cooperation and and uh, um, the care and attention that the USDA has given to the coaching community has, has improved has improved a lot. Obviously maybe can get better, but uh just wanted to put I wanted to put that out there that that player development, yes, has a history of being tone deaf and and uh, and really it maybe maybe um disrespectful to the private coaching community, but I think that that relationship has improved actually improved a lot. So, what else does uh, Wayne Bryan have to say here, father of the Bryan brothers? Number five, those USDA staffers that have called me or who have been on conference calls with me, they said three things over and over to support this harmful and ill-conceived U10 mandate. So he goes into the three myths. He's going to go through three myths here that he sees in U10. And I still see some of these myths today. Number one is all 10s dink, right? As someone who has coached a lots of top Southern California Tennis Association 10s through the years, all three of, of these pillars are erroneous. So this is the first one. He's going to bust this myth. He says, I can show you all kinds of kids around the country at 8, 9, and 10 that can flat out nail the ball and have very complete games. Mike and Bob play short doubles matches with little kids around the country at all their exhibitions and charity events. Usually the kids are U10s. 
The points are astonishing, and they always use yellow balls. For these kids, green balls are a joke. So here on this first myth that Wayne is busting, I, I really do concur wholeheartedly. I, I agree passionately that the best talented kids, and this comes from my own personal experience coaching prodigies, they, they can all play with a yellow ball. It's not a big deal. And they can all play on a full court. And they can all hit, hit very well. If you've seen a, ta a talented kid, some, some coaches haven't had a, a chance to work with a, a talented athletic young kids for whatever reason, the club they work in or the environment where they're at. Maybe they just don't have the opportunity. I'm telling you, a, a good, good to, to very good athlete, can, they can all play at, like, like Wayne says, 8, 9, 10, easily with the, with the yellow ball. And they can move well and, and keep the ball from bouncing over their head. And it's, it's, not, it's not an issue. So that's why Wayne and other coaches, I mean, including myself, have always felt that this initiative should be called more U8 or U6 because the, the best ones, the really good ones, they, they, can play, they can play with yellow much younger than what you'd hear in the marketing campaign, much younger than all of the paid spokespeople who, who got USDA got to support this campaign or this mandate than what they said. You know, so there just seems to be a, a disconnect with what, what we have and are here, still here from the USDA about the age that's appropriate to play with the yellow ball and what, what, actually, what we actually see with talented kids in the field. So that's number one, that myth that all, all tens kids just, they sort of uh, hit, hit moon balls like ping pong back and forth. They just dink the ball and it's not technical and it's like really messy and disorganized and it, it puts them at a risk of injury. It puts them at a risk of extreme grips. I, 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 busted some of these myths last week. If you check out episode 32, where we talked about the myths of red, orange, green, and my thoughts and perspectives on red, orange, green training in general, we talked about this last week where, you know, it's really the coach's job to teach a kid prop, good grips, proper grips. It's the coach's job to teach a kid how to move their feet and prevent the ball from bouncing over their head, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I totally agree with Wayne on that myth number one. So he goes into myth number two, and he says, it, do, uh, it doesn't matter how you do in the tens. So this is a very common message that you, you get. He's saying it's coming from the USTA, and he's right. So I, I remember myself, a lot of the marketing campaigns, the, the, the messaging, the advertisements, the, the paid spokespeople, you know, the industry leaders who were handpicked to represent U10 and, and Quick Start and, and, or 10 Under Tennis and Red, Orange, Green. And, and you get a lot of people saying that, you know, it doesn't matter how you do in the 10 and Unders. What matters is long-term player development. You know, they always say it's a marathon, not a sprint. I talked about this in episode 32. Again, you know, tennis is a long-term player development deal. It is a marathon, but it's also true that the best kids usually are playing very well under 10, and they usually are succeeding very well under 10, and that 
You want to get a player from A to B as fast as possible. You don't want to run the marathon slowly. You'd like to run the marathon fast, like the Kaylee or Kipchoge. You know, that's that's the type of marathon that you'd like to you know you'd like to run instead of a a uh, a slow marathon. So what the USDA is pushing and advocating is for a very slow development cycle, a slow a slow jog on the marathon. And I I want my students to run it like Kipchoge. You know the world he's the world marathon record holder most recently. So my son is in cross country and track and field. So we're big. Kipchoge fans, and we like Bekele, and we're we're learning about all the champions in in running. So, so what Wayne says in number two, he says, and he makes some I think very very persuasive arguments here, and and good points. He says, did the USDA staffers ever see Tracy Tracy Austin or Andre Andre Agassi at six, or Jennifer Capriati or Chrissy Everett? or Lindsay Davenport, or Michael Chang, or Pete Sampras, or Venus or Serena at 10. Andy Roddick, Marty Fish, Mike and Bob Bryan, Sam, Vanya, Donnie, it's probably Donald Young, or Ryan, probably Ryan Harrison he's referring to there. Does that mean that every top 10 will be a world-class player? He's saying top 10-year-old. Does that mean that every top 10-year-old will be a world-class player? Of course not. But every world-class player was passionate and getting after tennis as a very little guy or gal. Read the ATP or WTA media guides. So I think this is a very powerful point from Wayne. And I think I, for the most part, completely agree. There are probably some exceptions to what he's claiming. There are probably few examples, very rare examples of a player who is a world-class player, maybe a professional player who got into tennis late, maybe came into tennis seriously at a later age, maybe they were in another sport, something like that. But by and large, the, the prodigies that you see under 10, the really gifted and amazing kids, I, I agree with Wayne that they, they're starting from a very young age, probably two, three, or four years old, they're running around with the little racket. This is what Wayne says, right? And those kids, some of them, yes, you can say to me, well, what if don't some of those kids burn out? Don't some of those kids, uh, they, they don't make it for whatever reason? Of course that happens. And Wayne says the same thing, of course. But the guys who are on top of the world, they started young and they played tennis early and typically with the yellow ball and, and uh, full-size equipment. So he's countering this myth that's, that's been shoved down everyone's throat, you know, this messaging that is false messaging from the USDA that, that don't rush the process. Don't, don't, uh, don't f try to accelerate your child and play yellow too early. Just be patient. Hang out there a while, no, no, no problem, you know, take your time. And you hear that a lot in USDA marketing for 10 and under tennis. And I really do believe that it, it holds, it's harmful to, to players who are talented. Probably not harmful to kids who just want to play recreationally. But, you know, my focus is high performance. 
This talk show is about high-performance tennis analysis. And I think that messaging is just, it's just not true. So it, it's important that if you're, you're going to come up with an initiative and you're going to try to sell it to everyone, that you sell it in an honest way and you don't try to, to deceive people. You know, it's, it's a little bit duplicitous or, or it, it's deceptive to say that, that it doesn't matter what your, what your ranking is or your results are when you're under 10 or under 12 for that matter, because it does. It really does matter. That's a big myth in junior tennis, that your ranking, your results don't matter at 10 or 12. Let me tell you, they matter a lot to the kid who's winning the national champ. That means a lot to that kid. Just from a personal level, it means a lot for that child to win a big tournament, to win an Orange Bowl or a national championship. It's a really big deal for that child. Don't Don't... Don't devalue those accomplishments. And also, don't say that it doesn't matter. Like, that, you, if your child is not getting a national ranking, your child is, is struggling, that somehow down the road they're going to show up and be a top national player and they're going to make pro or top college division one. It's just, it's, it, it very rarely happens. The guys over at Payers and Players podcast, my buddies, they did a very interesting study. I, I don't know the exact episode, but they did a, a very, very intelligent analysis of how most players, they, they went back through the rankings, and they said that most players who made it on tour, they, they, were, all in the, they were all on the boat, as they like to say. You know? Check out Payers and Players, guys, if you want another good junior development podcast, the uh, Payers and Players podcast. Good one. Uh, those guys are real smart. I've appeared on that show myself, so maybe check out that episode too if you like. Want to hear me talking about junior development and Spanish tennis? But they did a—you'll have to search for the episode. But they did a wonderful analysis where they went back through the data, and they can just show you that that it matters. It matters where your kids ranked when they're when they're under twelve, especially under fourteen. It matters. You know that the kids who are making it on the pro tour—they're there. They're on the boat. Uh, that's that's the national boat. They they may not be number one at ten years old, uh, at let's say twelve or, or fourteen, but they're 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 in the neighborhood. You know, they're in the top fifty generally, maybe top hundred. They're they're on the national scene because if you're really talented, you're always going to be on the national scene. There's no way you're going to be off in some sectional regional land. If you have pro talent, you're going to show up on the national radar, on the national scope. You know, you're going to get spotted uh, somewhere in that area, right? Guys, I appreciate all the waves. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking Wayne Bryan tonight. Thoughts on USTA, player development, American tennis, high-performance junior development. Appreciate all the waves. Thank you for tuning in. Let's see else. What do we got here? The third myth. The third myth that Wayne tries to bust Let's see if he does it successfully. He says, it doesn't matter if the top tens play up. Players should never play up unless they are flat out dominating their division. Oh, play up every once in a while to see what it's like or play up in a weaker tournament. Sure. So he's saying it doesn't matter if the top tens play up. From Wayne's perspective, he he believes that players shouldn't play up unless they're flat out dominating their division. So I'm not sure this is a little 
this is a, a part that's not as clear to me. I'm not sure what he's saying the USDA is arguing. If you know, feel free to chime in. I know we've got some, some viewers right now. That he says it doesn't matter if the top 10s play up. That's a message from the USDA. I guess they, they, because the USDA came in and does, they, they don't, they, they were changing the rules about allowing kids to play up. Well, Wayne talks about how there's, um, there was a boy who's playing yellow who was forced to go back down to green. So I, I'm not sure this third myth here, but Wayne is saying that you should be dominating your age division before you play up. That's a whole other topic of a show, should you play up or not. And we may do that topic in a, in a future podcast and show. But uh, Wayne is saying that you should be dominating your age division in general before you play up. And that this is potentially, this mandate is potentially harmful if it doesn't allow kids that flexibility. And that most top kids are, are playing up. And that's certainly a perspective that I've, I've seen. That's my experience. The, the best, most talented kids are dominating their age division and they're moving up to a higher age category, sometimes two or three categories above if they're a really gifted uh, prodigy. So let's move on to the sixth subject. Okay. He says Quick Start or the 10 and Under initiative is not a program. It's a tool. Most every teaching pro I know believes in graduated learning. It works for tennis. It works for drums, piano, surfing, dancing, speaking, all kinds of worthwhile endeavors. Mandating that every tournament for tens in the U.S. has to be with the green ball is over-the-top authoritarian and heavy-handed and is even seen by many as mean-spirited. So I think that's pretty fair analysis by Wayne. He's arguing for more freedom in the marketplace. He's arguing that parents should have choice. And he's saying that the USDA has been extremely uh, top-down, authoritarian, heavy-handed in forcing everyone to do it their way. And I think, in a large part, that's true. You know, the, the, it would have been better if the USDA probably stayed out of this, this area and allowed more freedom for parents and kids to choose how they want to play and, and also to get more input from coaches in the, the community. So I, I agree with Wayne on, on this point. Uh, let's see, number seven. Let's get some empirical data going. Right now, there is not one pro player on the ATP or WTA that grew up playing competitive tennis with green balls in the U10s. And last time I looked, there were some pretty dadgum, that's Wayne's saying, good players out there. And bingo, the USDA is mandating, and the ITF is also mandating, to be fair, that you must do it this way only. I'm reading from point number seven in Wayne's essay. Wayne says, you give me 100 kids and let me do my thing from age 6 to 10 and let me do the whole program the way I want. And you take 100 kids and keep them on soft-colored balls until they are 11, and then track both groups on until they're 18, and we'll see who has the goods. I know where I'll put my money. So on this, in this respect, I do tend to agree with Wayne that the, the best players, and I don't think it's going to change even though U10 is everywhere now and red, orange, green is everywhere. I just 
it's hard for me to believe that the most talented kids in the world, the ones who are going to end up top 10 in the world competing for grand slams, it's hard, hard for me to believe that those players are going to be playing with a green ball at 10 or let's say 11 or 12. Last week on the podcast, we talked about how many players are being held back to 11 or 12 in some regions of the country with the green ball. It's just very hard for me to believe that a, a, tr a truly gifted kid will be playing with that at that age. Is it possible? It might be possible, but I, I tend to agree with Wayne that if you have a bunch of good kids and if you let me train them at a young age, let's say between six and 10 with the yellow ball, and then we track their progress to 18 versus a group of kids who are playing with orange, especially orange. I really don't like the orange ball program, uh, the, the system and the requirement that by the time those kids are 18, the other group with the low compression balls and graduated equipment, I think that you'll see much better players in the yellow ball cohort. But again, who knows? Because no one's ever done this study and no and I probably the USDA won't commission it but it would be an interesting study to see if we could get some kind of data to show which way is better and this is going to be the the big million dollar question this the million dollar question that nobody ever answered i remember being at a USDA high performance workshop and Rick Furman who is a was uh, the COO of the USDA. He was an executive at the USDA, and he was also a very well-known private coach, right? He says, he said in, in, in the, the group, you know, we had a group of a lot of esteemed coaches, and uh, there were some USDA executives and, and uh, player development leaders in, in the player development department were there, and, and Rick, you know, basically took over the whole boardroom. I think we were doing a high-performance course, and we were in the, the boardroom underneath Arthur Ashe at the U.S. Open. And Rick basically just took over. Rick's a real smart guy, and he's, he's very assertive. And he's a powerful speaker, and he just took over the whole boardroom and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, guys. You're telling me we're turning around. I mean, I remember it very vividly. He said, you're telling me we're turning around the whole ship, the whole cruise liner, and we're turning it the other way, but we have no data to support it. And that always struck me as a very salient point where Rick Furman was saying, Rick Furman was Todd Martin's coach, and he was a, he's a very well-known coach in the industry in, in high-performance junior development. And he's basically saying that you know we don't have any science behind this. We have no studies behind this, but we're going to move the whole industry we're going to take all these kids and basically perform an experiment on them. And it's been an experiment now for eight or 10 years or whatever, whenever the first, the mandate first came in. And that's what we've done without any data to support it. And Wayne is sort of picking up on the same line of argument, argumentation there. So we've got our first question of the night from Adam Friul. Adam, hope I pronounced that right. Adam says... So I know Djokovic didn't use green balls, but from his video at six, it looks like he's using dead balls when he was training. What do you think? And how did you get into that convo with the coaches at Arthur Ashe? Well, 
that question is easy to answer. If you're one of the, if you're a graduate of the USDA High Performance Coaching Program, there's a special list of courses or uh, continuing education workshops that you can do each year. And so the USDA sends those out to everyone who is a certified high performance coach with USDA. And so th they have a, a lot of really good CEU programs that they do at different professional tournaments. They do it at the U.S. Open, uh, coaches training, basically, education, sports science. Uh, they do them at a number of different professional events each year, and I highly recommend those continuing education workshops and programs. They're really excellent, and, and they've made a big impact on me over the years, especially I value the sports science. I like hearing all of the latest sports science from the experts who either the USDA has hired or they've uh, commissioned or they've, they brought them in as, as a consultant. So I've had those programs have had a big influence on me and they've had a, a very positive influence on my coaching career and my coaching trajectory. So I'm very appreciative that player development offers those to the USDA high performance graduates. And so the one at the US Open is really cool because they give you a pass to watch all the matches. Uh, you get a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not certificate, but you get, uh, ah, the name of it slips my mind, but basically you get a, you know, all access pass to all the, all the, all the, um, the matches. And you get to meet in Arthur Ashe, the boardroom under Arthur Ashe, which is pretty cool. So Djokovic, I don't know his uh, his um, uh, credentials is the name. Uh, sorry, slipped my mind. You, you get a full credentials for the tournament, which is really cool. So Djokovic, I don't know. If he's using dead balls, that, that's not the same as a green ball because they they're, they have a heavier mass. I, I personally like to use yellow uh dead or yellow balls. I think those are great, great way to introduce kids to yellow ball training. And I happen to, they're, they're also a lot cheaper than buying green balls. The red, orange, green balls are very expensive. As a lot of you coaches know, I much prefer to use older or old or older yellow balls. And they, they have more mass. They're way heavy. They're, they weigh more. And they are also, they don't bounce as high. And, and sometimes with, with kids who are struggling with, that's not a bad compromise way to go. And it's, and like I said, it's inexpensive. So I think that Djokovic was using full-size equipment at a very young age, wasn't he? And he, was he playing on a full court? You know, so you have a lot of those variables, the court size, the ball, the compression of the ball, and the equipment. Those all matter in junior development. So I'm sure we could do a, a very inter interesting study of all the different players who are on tour now. And what you'll see is some of the players coming out of countries like France or Belgium <coughs> or other countries that have a real strong red, orange, green program, probably they, there are some, some players who, who did play with, with low compression balls. But I think the point that Wayne is making is no one who is really talented is playing with the green ball at 10. Or it's going to be very rare. I, I would be curious to know how many of the like the next gen players coming up are actually playing. When they were young, did they play with a green ball when they were ten? I don't think so. Because what happens is the parents and the coaches who are working with. If you have a really gifted kid, it's just obvious that it's too easy for them. 
And it's just very, it's much more common for the, the coach and parent to choose more challenge for a gifted kid with really good eyes, really good hands and feet. Uh, it, it just playing with a slower ball doesn't make sense common sense just forget the sports science or whatever it just doesn't it doesn't look or feel right so yeah we can get into individual cases if you'd like but basically that you will see more players using uh lower compression balls coming out of france for example france has a strong history of that and spain doesn't have that history spain tends to play the, the young kids on on the yellow although that may be changing now as the, the programs grow and grow, all the initiatives grow and grow all around the world. But is that because is that because it's a better way, or is that just because someone high high up somewhere, ITF and in the individual um, federations decided that that's the way we're going to train young kids? It's certainly not based on data, and that's kind of the whole point. That none of, none of it's based on data. We don't have the data, but yet everyone's turning around the ocean liner and heading it in a different direction. And that was Rick Furman's point, and that is Wayne Bryan's point. Uh, we don't know which way is better. And Wayne is saying that the yellow ball way is, is for sure better. He's very confident in that. I've said, I've made similar arguments, but for me, I don't doubt that I could develop a, an, a world-class player with a low compression ball. I, I don't think it's uh, an impossibility. And you may get a little bit t better tactical development from using a low compression ball. In the last episode of the podcast and show, episode 32, I talked about some of the negatives of using low compression uh, balls so, and graduated equipment and small courts. So uh, I see from a technical side, I think that there are some detriments to using that type of structured system. But... You know, I, I think there's more than one way to climb the mountaintop and to become a world-class player. But again, if a kid is really gifted, I can't imagine they're using soft, slow balls, small courts, small rackets uh, as they get, you know, as they get to nine, ten. Certainly not to eleven or twelve. It's just too. It's just no challenge for them. It's it's not it's not enjoyable for them uh, from that perspective. So. Adam Friul says, agreed, red, orange, green is for late development players. Do you think it's good for average players or no? Yes, I think it's a really good system for recreational players. In fact, uh, as a, it, it has to be, I think the whole program has to be deemed a net positive for the country because it's really good and fun for children at the recreational level, easy to get kids playing the game. You know, play and stay is the ITF initiative. You play and you stay. You get more kids involved. It's a real positive, real net positive in that respect. I just think from the high performance angle, it's not. It's probably not a net positive and it's probably detrimental to a lot of talented kids. And certainly the mandate is, is detrimental to many talented kids out there. And the whole, a lot of the, there's a lot of hype and myth that's come from this big marketing campaign, this big marketing push that doesn't help, that's not going to help the, the talented ones. And, it's, and some people may even argue that it's, affected, it's affecting us all the way up to the top level where we don't have enough boys winning Grand Slams and, and you know, top level tournaments. I, I don't know if I would go that far because 
At the same time, we've had many successes with female players. So I don't know if you can say that 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 there's definitely a um, um, a core. Um, there's probably that there's a correlation, and there there's um, that you can draw a clear line from one to the other. I, I don't know if you can say that, but some people certainly try. They say, well, you know, we don't play with yellow ball anymore, and that's why we don't have Grand Slam players. I don't think you can really fairly make that that argument i don't know if you can draw a direct line but people try so gordon paul is on the program what's up gordon and he says what did the coaches at the convo say yeah at that time this was probably around you know 2011 or 2000 you know 2012 and i think it was pretty heated discussion uh rick rick Furman t- took over the boardroom and He's a tough guy to debate with. And he used to be the COO, so he used to be in charge of all of everyone. So he's not used to, he wasn't, he didn't like to take, uh, he, he didn't like being told that he was wrong, I'll tell you that. And I think he raised some really good points and people in the, in the, in the workshop, you know, obviously look at me, I was a participant in the workshop. I still remember the conversation. I still remember the, the discussion had a strong impact on me. It really made me think about, geez, what are we doing here? You know, we, we're, we're turning around the ocean liner and we have no data. And that's basically what's happened, right? That's what's happened all across the country. In fact, it's been an experiment all around the world. The last um, eight to 10 years, the ITF mandate, I think, came down in 2009 or 2010. I remember I was at the ITF World Conference in Valencia, Spain, and... That was the first that uh, that we were that that was the first time the ITF publicly announced that it was going to mandate U10 tennis, you know, playing with the low compression ball. And at the time, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they were going to change the rules of the game that way. I thought it was a huge, huge leap, and it was very heavy-handed and authoritarian too. And they did it. They require all member nations to do it that way now. And they don't allow yellow ball tennis for uh, for kids under 10 anymore in the whole world. And will there be more reflection and analysis and maybe uh, a counter movement? Yeah, it, it may happen. It may happen with new uh, new administrators, new leaders in the ITF or in individual federations. We'll see. This is still uh, an experiment that we're learning about ten, about ten years, you know, more or less ten years in. We'll see what happens, right? And uh, as a net positive, really good for grow, a really good tool, a really good program for growing the game. I think the jury is is out, and I highly doubt that it's a it's a better way to train high performance players. I, I doubt it. Of course, others will have, they'll have that opinion, you know, they, they, but it, it's opinion. It's important to understand that there's differing opinions on this and we don't have the data, right? Okay, so let's see what else we got from Wayne here. Wayne Bryan saying, did we get to number seven here? That was the data. Number eight, there are bribes and threats being used to sell this quick start and the mandate. I have lots of anecdotal evidence of this, and put your ear to the ground and you will hear all about it. If the mandate is so great, why do you have to resort to that? Exclamation point. 
So many coaches and parents are afraid to speak out against it. The pros in the South have formed a regular tens tennis circuit, and it has gone very well with a good amount of entries. The green ball tourneys have been small. Now the local USDA staffers are calling the various parents and kids telling them not to play X, Y, not to play or X, Y, or Z will happen. Various pros have had their jobs threatened for not adhering to the quick start line. I think this, this summarizes the, the zeitgeist of the time, just the, 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 the feeling, the, the spirit of the time, the, the, the pressure that was put on coaches and, and, and different stakeholders in the industry to get behind this movement. And I think Wayne's right on here where he says that people were threatened at that time. I don't think it's happening as much anymore. Like, I don't feel a, a immediate danger in having this podcast and show and talking about U10, ROG. I, I, don't, I don't think there'll be much of a, you know, I don't think I'll be put on a blacklist. I think I'm also giving a very fair, objective anal analysis. I'm not, I'm certainly not being... Uh, overzealous or or um, irrational, uh, criticizing these things irrationally. You know, I'm trying to have a, a, an objective, logical uh, discussion about it, and I'm trying to make rational points. So, and I try to be fair and balanced. You know, I, I don't try to take uh, extreme radical views uh, with for no reason. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I think he's just sort of summarizing the, the spirit of the times. The, the, the mandate was being put in circa 2012, a lot of pressure, a lot. Of, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think I was ever personally threatened. I didn't, I didn't like at that time. I, I certainly I probably wouldn't have spoken out like this at that time because uh, there was uh, you, you could feel the, the, the pressure coming down from above and. I don't know if I would have stuck my head out, my neck out uh, in 2012. But now, you know, the, the system is in place. People are behind it. And, you know, I feel it's I feel comfortable giving a countervailing viewpoint and and spurring intelligent debate and sort of getting uh, more discussion going and, and, and creating some time to reflect. We're trying to create an uh, hopefully uh, there's hopefully in this environment it's not not a big deal anymore. We can start to reflect on this thing and maybe make some adjustments to the entire system, you know. Uh, Wayne has some other interesting points. It's, as I said, a very long essay. I will try to get through the, the good stuff so we can get to the mailbox tonight because I know it's, it's getting late for everyone except for my friends who are in a different time zone. So Wayne has this big... He has a big view, big viewpoint, big perspective on college tennis, and I'd like to throw this out to you guys. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Wayne, and I wonder what you guys think. So Wayne believes, and this is the first of his other miscellaneous input. He calls it other miscellaneous input, and he says that college tennis is a disaster in the U.S., and it's the the biggest reason why. Uh, American college tennis is 
is a problem for, for Wayne is that all of the international players are on the teams and, and all of the schol- most of the scholarships or at latest count, I think it's about 65% of scholarships are going to international players. So this is a recurrent theme in the essay where Wayne complains about the unfairness of that. And to be honest, I don't think I agree. So I, I'm not, by far, I'm not, uh, I haven't spent a lot, lot of time studying that issue. But for me, I think that scholarship should go to the most talented players. And if you, if you want to get a scholarship to play on a college team, then you should work your ass off and get to the level that you need to get to, whether you're American or whether you're from another country, that the scholarship should go to, to the best players. Coaches are trying to recruit the best players for their team, and they want to get the best players they can find. And I don't, I don't like when American players gripe and complain and make excuses, American families, that, you know, they're not getting the goods. I mean, they pay, you know, Wayne argues that, you know, you pay, Americans pay their tax dollars and then for the university or somehow it makes a link with American taxpayer dollars. And, you know, he doesn't think it's fair that all the scholarships go to non-American kids. But, I mean, isn't the answer to that just the American kids should train harder and get better so that they can get the scholarships too? I think there's an undercurrent to that argument where sometimes the American kids are disadvantaged in the admissions process. And if that's true, that's not fair. But assuming that the admissions process is fairly level and that there's no disproportionate uh, advantages given to international players, then I just think that American players should suck it up and work harder if they're getting... If all the European players are better or South American players are stronger, I mean, that just means the American kids aren't doing a good enough job. You know, maybe they're not, they got to dedicate more. They got to sacrifice more so that they can get on the teams. That, that's, that's how I see that issue. What do you guys think? You, I know people come down on both sides of that issue. You know, some people say we should have quotas for American players. You know, the, the USDA doesn't give the, the NCAA championship uh, champion a wild card anymore if they're international they don't get a wild card to the US Open anymore so that, you know there's that de- you know, I think we should definitely we should definitely try to promote more american kids in college tennis i would love to see more players on the rosters american being american but i think they should earn it they shouldn't just get it through quotas you know and i think the bigger question is why why are so many international players coming in at higher UTRs than American kids? And that's, that maybe comes back to the whole question of USCA and tournament structure and player development and, and the whole system itself. I mean, does that, you know, what, what is causing American players at 18 to have lower UTRs than their international counterparts? Like, that's really the question. What are we doing wrong? Is it that the uh, European kids are working harder? Is it that you hear that a lot, that the, the kids are, are more dedicated, you know, that you hear a lot that American kids are soft. I don't necessarily agree with that, to be honest. Well, what's the, well, what is the issue with American kids where their UTRs are not competitive with the international, their international counterparts? That's really the issue. I don't think we should necessarily block off quote, quote, you know, a quota of 
spots for American kids who who don't deserve it because their rank their ranking or their UTR is not not high enough. So that's kind of how I see that issue. I know that Wayne disagrees. So there here's a here's where Wayne and I will will differ in our viewpoint. Let's see what else does Wayne say. I mean, he's very passionate about that issue. I know some a lot of people are, but I just don't I don't know if you know. If you guys want to educate me, explain to me why Ameri uh, a lower UTR American kid should get a spot, you know, when some other kid in Europe busts their ass to get to a higher UTR, you can explain that to me. Uh, Tim Barnes says, did Bob and Mike attend college? And Gael Pitts-Black, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in. Gael Pitts-Black says, yes, Stanford. I think that's right. Yeah. Tim Barnes says, yes, what's wrong with our junior development team tennis support? Yeah, I'm going to get into that in just a little bit because that is um, one part of Wayne's critique that I really do want to discuss where he, he talks about ways to grow tennis in this country and ways to improve junior participation because I think he's got some really, really sharp ideas, really powerful ideas in that respect, and I'd like to go over those. Those are coming up real soon, I think. I think... I think we're getting through this essay. Are, are we near the end? Yeah, there, there's actually a bunch of questions that he asked at the end. Uh, that might be fun to address in another podcast or show. I won't go through all, all of them, but I did want to touch on his thoughts on how to increase junior participation, and, and um, I think that's coming up soon. So let me see if I can get to that, guys. Okay, so here are his uh, the second of his miscellaneous thoughts. He says... We should restore junior doubles rankings, more programming, promotion, and coaching for doubles. If we had more doubles programming, promotion, and coaching, we could quadruple the number of kids playing tennis. Doubles gives our sport more width and breadth. Doubles is fun for juniors, and it, is really, it really rounds out skills and teaches additional life lessons. And some young, youngsters just love playing on a team. They love the team thing. I'm quoting from Wayne here. Plus, it gives them a second chance if they lose their singles match at a tournament. And don't forget mixed doubles. Boys and girls truly love that. And there are also great life lessons inherent in mixed doubles. I just think this is one of the brilliant insights from Wayne. I don't agree about the college part, but this, this is so true. You know, where did the doubles rankings go? I remember when I played USTA, and it, w it was fun to be able to compete and work on both your rankings. You know, maybe if you, you struggled in singles, you could get a good doubles result, get it finished the year with a good doubles ranking. And I, I absolutely agree with him that that we should bring doubles rankings back. What's happening now? Do you guys know, do we have a national doubles ranking? You guys know. If you're listening, chime in. Let me know. I don't think we have them at the sectional level anymore, that we don't have them here in the East. One of the issues is we have, seven, I think, 17 sections, and, and they're really disjointed. It's um, Different sections make different rules in terms of um, tournament play and, and sometimes the way they're going to, maybe not with rankings, but yeah, yeah, th yeah, there's some leeway that the sections have, and so that you, you get a... a a, a fragmented system that's really it can be confusing to to, see, to know what uh, different regions are doing. I know USDA is working on that. We have a new 
new, you know, there's been a new tournament initiative that's coming in again. Another big change to the to the way we're going to uh, count all of the tournaments across the country. Now, apparently, we're going to get everything on the same system now, where where if you play out of your region or out of your section, the points will will count. Um, uh, universally, so that 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 is a, a potential positive down the road. But this is going back to 2012, where where Wayne's talking about the doubles rankings. I don't think we have them sectionally anymore. I just think in general, Wayne's always pushed for more doubles play and more focus on doubles. And you know, doubles is like the redheaded stepchild for most most um, sections now. And, and um, I, I think USDA is is probably trying to do some positive things. I believe they had some initiatives to help with that. But just in general, I think, I, I wonder if you guys agree that doubles is a, is a potential area where we could grow the sport tremendously and get a lot more participation. You know, what are some of the big ticket items we could use, we could, that we could use to explode participation, junior participation? One of the avenues has to be doubles. Because it's a team game, and a lot of kids don't want to play tennis because it's so it's insular it's it's such an individual pressure filled sport and when you introduce a team aspect to tennis, I think you broaden the reach to so many young kids out there who might not want to play singles so much competitively, but they're willing to play on a team. And so I just think there's a tremendous potential in doubles. Just however you want to do it. I know, I believe USDA would agree with that that statement, that there's a lot of potential in doubles. But for, on every level, from, from the junior level to, uh, from the junior level to the, uh, the, you know, the local, local level, sectional level, national level to, um, high school and college tennis to the pro level at all levels. I just think that there's tremendous potential in the promotion of doubles. And I know Wayne certainly agrees with that. After all, maybe he's a little biased because his sons are, you know, such great doubles players. He would like to see doubles grow more, but I actually agree with him on this. And I, I'm not even a huge doubles fan. Like I really prefer to watch singles myself and coming from uh, my Spanish training, there actually are a lot of good world-class Spanish doubles players, but certainly the, the training methodology in Spain is more singles-focused. And in my own coaching, I will admit, I, I tend to always in my mind prepare kids for singles play. But that being said, when I have a kid who I know who's going off to college, gonna I need to make them complete so that they can be a, a positive contributor in the doubles lineup as well. But I just think doubles is 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 an area for of the game that can be huge for the growth and popularity of the game. I'm always looking for ways that we could explode the participation in tennis because I love tennis and I would like to see the game become more popular and I think a rising tide will lift all boats. If if the game is becoming more popular, then everyone wins, you know, the all stakeholders in the industry win, especially the coaches because they got more kids to work with. It's good for us. It's good for the clubs. It's good for manufacturers and other other uh, businesses within the industry. So it's just what are the big ticket items we can address 
to try to explode participation. I'm not talking about adding, you know, 10,000 players. I'm talking about what could what could really add, um, you know, millions of new players to the game and make tennis win. I'm competitive, so I want to, you know, what could make tennis win over baseball, soccer, basketball. And I think doubles is is something that's integral to our sport, very unique in our sport that you can play in a singles and a doubles capacity. Very unique. The tennis has that a capability and I think we should ex- exploit that more and, and promote it more just on every level and and um, I guess it starts with the way we you know what tournaments tournament organizers offer and promote and how and and the rankings are really important that if we don't rank kids in doubles uh, they're not gonna um, take it very seriously I know I think ITF includes a percentage uh, of the singles ranking from doubles. I don't know if they still do that. I think uh, as, as my last check, I believe they do. Guys, let me know if that's true or not, but I'm not sure what the calculation is now with USTA and, and uh, singles ranking. Is doubles part of the singles ranking for USTA national rank? That's a good question. Let's see. The guy Al Pitts Black says, Eddie Herr has never been the same since IMG took it over. And they got rid of mixed doubles. The favorite time the kids had was playing mixed with kids all over the world. That's really good insight, Gael. Hope I'm pronouncing your name right there. Uh, you make a very, very good point. Uh, and, and you're basically mirroring or reinforcing what Wayne said. He said that mixed doubles is uh, really fun and it teaches the kids life lessons and how to get along with other kids and, you know, yeah, these are the kind of uh, ideas that could really change the game, right? So Wayne has more. He talks about junior team tennis, so he's really big on JTT. Uh, number three here, additional thoughts, he says JTT should be emphasized more. He says we should have more zonals and intersectionals. I believe we are trying, uh, USDA is aware of this and trying to work in this area. They definitely believe in more team they're trying to promote more team competitions. They believe that's a way to grow the game. I just don't think they're doing enough. You know, it's not expansive enough. It's not revolutionary. It's not. It's it's not enough to revolutionize the the way we're doing it. I, I want to see a revolution. I want to see something really uh, something really exciting and, and dramatic to try to shake up the the way we do things, shake up the status quo, and try to bring more kids into the game. When I think about bringing more kids in the game, I just the image of Nick Kyrgios pops into my mind. You know, these are ways. Uh, I, I believe Kyrgios is a type of of um, popular, transcendent tennis player. He's someone who can transcend the sport, who can help us grow the game on uh, from the uh, from the professional level. And there's all these things that our federation can do on a more on a local and national level and with the tournament organization and things like that that we that can also help to grow the game so number four in uh, additional thoughts from wayne he says we should have more support for high school tennis we should have state championships than a national high school championship at the u.s open great idea uh, for boys and girls and a team from each state should be invited to the U.S. Open for a high school national championship. I don't believe we have anything like that right now. 
I think this is a, a very salient point, really jumps out at me. And it's something that I've talked about a lot that I'd like to see the backbone of American competitive tennis being refocused towards the high schools. And currently, we don't do anything, anything like that. If you look at the numbers, very small percentage of tennis players, junior tennis players, actually compete in USDA tournaments. And I, I'm sorry, I don't, have, I don't remember the, 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 the rough numbers, but the participation that we have in high school tennis competitively just dwarfs by, by, you know, by uh, a factor of 10 or more the, uh, the participation that we have in, in USDA junior tournaments, that is like singles competition. And I think instead of trying to get all of those high school kids to play competitive tennis, USDA tournaments, we should, we should go and USDA should go and someone should go in and, and make high school tennis more dynamic and better, better coached. The coaching at the high school level is, is, is just terrible. And there should maybe be funding to get better coaching in the high school tennis and even middle school tennis. I like Wayne's idea to, to go after, um, he has another, I think it's coming up, where he has another point about getting kids involved in the middle school level. And so he says that this could be a pathway to get many more players in the game. And also, I think we could train them better from a coaching point of view, that the coaching is really dismal at, the, at most high schools around the country. Sometimes it's just a, a teacher, a volunteer teacher doing it, or the, the coaches are really poorly paid. So none of, the, none of the best coaches in the U.S. want to coach high school generally because the pay is so bad. And I just think the whole system could be restructured where we could promote high school tennis better. We could have, like Wayne says, a whole pathway to a national championship. That would be so cool. You see UTR. This is pre-UTR. This uh, this essay from Wayne is pre-UTR. Uh, you see UTR coming in. I'd be interested to know Wayne's thoughts on UTR and, and, it's, and how it can help promote tennis around the U.S. Because UTR is trying to get into the high school game. And in, in you know, state by state, UTR is trying to get all of the high school matches to count for your UTR. And that is a big deal because kids will want to play more high school tennis than if it counts for their UTR. I think it's a wonderful idea to, to help grow the game and build participation. Currently, most of the best tennis players uh, typically don't play on their high school team because it takes too much time or the coaching is poor, as I mentioned, or there's just not enough flexibility to travel to tournaments and things like that. And sometimes the, the competition is not very good. So Imagine if we could get all of the really good players who play USDA tournaments. Imagine if all of them did did high school. They did they did high school tennis, and then it was very exciting to build up to the national championship and things like that. It all counted for UTR. You know, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's kind of what I envision. And would there still be a, a USDA national junior circuit? Yeah, probably, but maybe we wouldn't need so many so many tournaments maybe it would be scale it could be scaled back you know some that that is i'd love to see uh some proposals to reinforce and 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 grow the the high school competitive scene the system i think there's a huge potential for growth there let's see wayne says 
we should have more trips to college matches for juniors. I'm a big, big believer in that. Uh, Wayne's all about getting kids excited and motivated to play, and he thinks that getting kids to college uh, tournaments is a, is a big part of that, uh, college matches. I think USDA is doing a real good job of that. And in Lake Nona, they partnered with the Tennis Channel, and you have you have college game day now. It's so cool, you know. These we never had these things when I was a kid. You know, you can watch the college teams competing uh, on television, or you can go to Lake Nona and watch the teams if you're in the area down there. But really, that the fact that it's broadcast is very exciting. A great way to get kids enthusiastic about playing college tennis. And I think uh, um, Wayne makes a very good point about that. He says, number six, more trips to pro matches, uh, whether that's Futures, Challengers, ATP, WTA, or World Team Tennis events. Very good point. You know, I'd like to see USDA fund more of that. You know, they, I don't know if currently if USDA does anything like that. Certainly not player development's purview, but maybe another department in the USDA could, uh, could try to do that. I don't know if they are doing that currently. So Wayne says that we should get rid of USDA player development altogether. So I mentioned earlier in the show that I don't agree fully with that. Perhaps there's a way to scale back uh, uh, some of the, the player development budget or activities, but, but essentially Wayne goes into a long sort of diatribe about why USDA should be abandoned. And I... I see a lot of positives in player development, and I also see some of the negatives. So for me, it's more of a balanced perspective, and uh, I won't go into some of the those parts just so we can we can save time and and wrap up here soon. Wayne says the uh, USDA has been the biggest impediment to growth of tennis in this country. That's pretty harsh. Each regime issues one harmful mandate after another, only then to be overturned by the next regime. That is probably true. You know, um, he talks about how the national tournament schedule has been changed a lot. That is true. There's been a lot of um, restructuring at the national tournament level. We're going through another one now where the the tournaments are going to be restructured. He says... The USDA made a mistake getting rid of the National 12's rankings when player development first began. Uh, that, that, I don't think that was player development that made the decision. Maybe they had some input on that, but he said, I'll, I guess I'll just go through it quickly with you guys. He says they're, they're thrust to get rid of the influence of parents and local coaches. That has really been around for the full 20, he says they this is circa 2012, so he's saying 23 years they've been trying to get rid of the influence of parents and local coaches. That, that is really true. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad history with player development, trying to push out parents and coaches, and there's just a lot of bad blood, a lot of bad memories. I really think the last eight years have been better. I don't know if you guys agree or not, but I think USDA has been working much more carefully, trying to be more inclusive and to be less... Uh, less heavy-handed and less dictatorial. But there's still just a long history and a lot of, a lot of uh, bruised, uh, I guess, bruised parents and coaches from, from battling with the USDA and particularly player development over the years. So there's just a lot of bad memories and a lot of bad blood about that. I think he's right about that. Um, 
let's see. He says that there's... Um, it's kind of interesting, his thoughts. He says there's no magic place where USDA can train kids. I don't know what Wayne believes about Lake Nona. He probably thinks it's crazy to spend that much money on Lake Nona. And you can make a pretty good argument that the, the millions that they put into Lake Nona, I mean, maybe could have been used in, in a better way, you know, but it is a tremendous super center. And time will tell whether it, it helps, works to help uh, American tennis in, in a net positive way, but it's a tremendously expensive facility and you, you have to ask yourself what, you know, there's an opportunity cost for, for using the money for that. Like where, where could the money be best served? Do we need a super center like that? Do we need Carson? Do we need Training Center East? And, you, have, you know, these are facilities that, that are, they, they also have to be maintained. You know, they're ongoing um, uh, expenditures. They don't just, you don't just build a facility like that and then, the, you know, that's all, that's all that's in the budget. The budget just, you know, continue, the budgeting has to keep going ad, uh, ad infinitum because you, you have to maintain these places as well. So, all right, he makes a few more notes. Of, he, he goes on and on about USDA. He's not, not a fan, especially of player development. So, I don't really want to get into, you know, whether USDA is... In general, I think it, it is an issue with player development. Wayne talks about how you know a lot of the 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 the, the jobs there are basically sinecure. Sinecure is a job where you get paid not to do very much. You know, kind of cushy job. And I, in some respects, that's true. I mean, I've seen some some coaches, national coaches, maybe they they don't you know. They're, they're kind of phoning it in. I've also seen some national coaches that are very good and talented and they were hardworking and passionate. So I just think it's, 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 une it's not fair to just, uh, uh, to blanket critic criticize, uh, every employee of player development, let's say, or of the USDA. Are, are there some bloated salaries in the USDA? Yeah, probably. Are there people who are, are just phoning it in and, and, and collecting a paycheck? Of course, uh, I guess that that's possible. But there's also a lot of uh, sincere, hardworking, passionate people in the USDA, and especially in player development. I know, I know a bunch of them. So it's, I don't think it's as, as easy to just uh, to, to criticize them all and say, oh, they should all be fired or the whole thing should be shut down or something like that. So um, It's true that because the, the way player development is, the, the national coaches, it's a weird, weird place to work because they're not – they're not sort of. They're not always judged on their results. Like if a player's, uh, like if I do a bad job with my uh, my students, the students aren't doing well. The parents fire me, and I don't get paid. I can't support my family. So I, there's a lot of pressure on me to make sure that my students are winning, and getting you know getting the trophies and doing well in their goals. But uh, for a national coach or someone who's on a salary with USDA, that if a player's not doing very well. They can just cut them loose, and they don't lose their. Ultimately, they don't lose their paycheck. I was, you know, I considered uh, becoming a national coach or applying for a national coach job because I have some good connections in player development, and I was thinking about what it was, what it must be like to be uh, in that position. Where at the end of the day, if a player's not doing well, you can just say, "All right, you know what? I, I don't want you here. I'm going to go recruit another talented kid to, and see if that works out." You know, there, there's a lot. There's not as much incentive for those coaches to 
to be flexible and to try to find a way with the player. It's, it's a lot easier because they're on salary. They can just say, well, this is the way we do it. This is our philosophy. This is how I coach. And you're going to have to uh, bend to my, to what I want, or I'm just going to, uh, I'm not going to give you wild card, or I'm, I'm not going to recommend you for the next, uh, uh, the next, um, the next team that we're doing or the, or the next, uh, program or workshop or the, or the next scholar, the next year of training or whatever it is. So, and Wayne sort of touches on a number of those issues where he, he's seen the same sort of, uh, negative, uh, poisonous, uh, atmosphere sometimes in player development. I think that there's probably some credence, uh, to that, uh, it, it, there are some, sometimes it's an issue when you have coaches who are on salary and they're not being, they're not in the marketplace that sometimes you, you wonder whether, uh, they're, they're fully, um, dedicated to each player who's there, uh, it, it, it's, it's that, that is a, a legitimate concern for any, I just think any coach in any organization who's on a salary, it's like you, you go to the, why don't you get great service service when you're at the post office or, or, or at uh, the department of motor vehicles, because those folks they, at the end of the day, they have their job, whether they give you good service or not, they have to give you a certain level of service, but it doesn't have to be great because they're on salary. You know, they they have a cushy, um, government or state position. And I think it's, it's, there's a parallel that you see in, in USDA sometimes when, uh, like I said, there, there, there are a lot of dedicated, passionate people, but then there are also people who, who maybe are not so much that way because they know that if they don't do a, a great job with your kid, at the end of the day, they're probably going to keep their job and they're just going to move on to the next, um, uh, recruitment class that they take in. And I think a lot of kids have been harmed um, in, in some, uh, over the years in some player development programs, I've had a few players myself who, um, had one, one, one very bad experience with one of my girls who was, uh, uh maybe about top 20 in the country. And, uh, we joined with uh, player development and she got a really bad injury from, from the trainers. I don't know if they were pushing too hard or they didn't, uh, you know, it's always hard to pinpoint what caused an injury, but I felt that we were really damaged. Uh, I felt she was very damaged by joining player development, uh, the player development group. She joined uh, the group in Training Center East. This is uh, going back probably to around that time, actually, 2012 or so, 2013. And we had a really bad experience. Uh, but at the same time, I've had some players who've had a, um, received a lot of help from player development. They've, they've received a lot of good trainings and, and the supplemental coaching and and support. So I, I don't like to say, uh, I like to try to give a balanced uh, viewpoint of USDA in particular, specifically player development. So, you know, uh, people feel very strongly one way or the other about USDA and player development. But in my opinion, things are getting, getting uh, uh, better. And, uh, and that's where I see things now. Hopefully it'll stay that way. And there, there won't, we won't be at, uh, there won't be uh, so much drama and um, and so much conflict between USDA and player development and you know the the coaching community at large the the private coaching community. All right, let's see what else we got here. Try to wrap up. He goes on and on about uh, USDA and player development. <laughs> you guys can read it for yourself. I'm not going to go more into that. Uh, 
Let's see. Yeah, he's talking about re reducing the salaries and uh, uh, reducing staff expenditures or eliminating the department completely. So that I'll leave that for you guys, whether you think player development should be uh, eliminated or not. I, 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 don't, I, I think that they play a role. It has to be uh, respectful to the private coaching community and to parents and other stakeholders. And, and uh, it's better if we all work together to grow American tennis than than to fight all the time, in my opinion. All right, so that's, that's about the end of the essay. There's a number of questions that Wayne asked. That would be an interesting podcast if I just went through and tried to answer all of his questions about how to coach. He, 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 sums, he finishes the, the essay with about 21, sorry, 23 questions that uh, he has for USTA. That would be interesting to have, maybe do a show about that. 23 questions for the USDA. I want to get to the mailbox really quick because it's getting late. And so I had a question from uh, Tomaz, I think. I think Tomaz is a fan of the podcast and uh, podcast. And he had a question about the, the difference between training U18 girls and U18 boys. And I think he had another question. Let me see if I can uh, dial it up real quick. And then we had another question about footwork and uh, on on the uh, uh, the reverse pivot on the on the backhand versus the the forehand uh, reverse pivot type uh, footwork movement. Maybe let me see if I got the questions here. Ah, here we go. So the first question from mailbox this week. I get a lot of questions in the mail, guys. If you have a question, be feel free to let me know. You can always email me at chris at chrislewitt.com. Chris at chrislewitt.com. Uh, also, you can send me, you can message me directly on Facebook or Instagram, or I'm on all social media. Um, and you can also WhatsApp me if you're international. My WhatsApp is Chris Lewitt, 914-462-2912. So I have parents now and coaches, of course. And players, they send me lots. I get videos from all over the world that I like to review. It's a good way for me to learn what's happening in different parts of the world. It's very interesting for me. And I like to help all the players, and especially children out there. And I get a lot of questions in our, our mailbox um, through different, whether it's through social media or through email directly. And uh, so I got a nice question from Tomas. He asked me to answer this question on the show tonight. So Tomas, here we go. Let's see what you have for me. He says, what are the main differences in tennis training for junior girls and boys, uh, U18? I think that's specifically for 18 and under kids. And what should the goals and assumptions be for training juniors U18? So it's a really broad question, Tomas, and I will do my best to answer. Maybe you could send me a follow-up with a little more detail and, and specificity on what, you, on, you know, what particular questions you want me to answer about training older kids, uh, 18 and under. But in general, uh, those types of kids, depending on the level, yeah, also let me know the level because that really uh, affects the answer. But usually those types of players are either on the pro tour or especially with, with female players, they are, they are um, usually playing pro by that time or those are kids preparing for college. And what I would say is in general for that, that level and that age, if they're high level, I'm assuming these are, you're talking about high level competitors, 
is that for me, the most important thing, whether they're a boy or a girl, is developing the all-court game, developing a, a, a complete game. Because in college, there's going to be a, a, an important emphasis on, on doubles play and on, on attacking and being able to finish points at the net. So uh, for me, personally, I, I try to emphasize with my older students as they become 16, 17, 18, and they're starting to look, even at 15, as they're starting to think about college and um, some of them may be thinking about transitioning to the pro tour, I like to see a complete game with weapons. And as, an, as a corollary to having weapons is you should be able to finish uh, forward at the net in the front court. So for me, that's a, a big part of junior development with older kids is, is rounding out their games, polishing their games, and making sure they can finish well at the net, that they have good uh, net instincts, good net technique. That includes the overhead. And that they're able to transition well. I work a lot on transition as a player gets older, whether they're female or male. But in in general, with female players, I think the return of serve is huge. And usually hear that from coaches who spend a lot of time with with girls and female on the female side of the game, the WTA side of the game, or or female tennis. It's a, a return dominant game. So that's another area where I would say, as you have, if you have an older female player. It's important for males too, but in general, you know, the, uh, you see that in the female game, the returner serve is is preeminent. It's uh, super important to have a dominating, aggressive returner serve so you can take charge of the point early. And if you have female players who are older teenagers, I would highly recommend spending a lot of time on the return game, return strategy and skills, and also making sure that the players, whether they're boy or girl, are have a of complete polish and they have all the skills that they're going to need at the higher levels which are typically college high level college uh, and the professional tour these are players who are typically transitional pros or they're transitioning to college so complete game shouldn't be working on much with technique at that time if there are any technical issues you want to try to remediate them as quickly as possible you definitely don't want a kid that age you don't want to be working on much technique at all so if you need to, um, if you have some small technical projects, you can do that. But mostly with players that age, it's all about getting the mindset right, competing well, being very professional in their approach to the game, to, to competition, having good tactics and strategy, and uh, for me, developing a, a complete game. So Tomas, I hope that helps. You also can leave comments uh, on this post. This will be a video post and I answer all the comments. You can also send me a follow-up question uh, via email if you'd like. That's fine. And I'll try to answer your question fully. You asked about the goals and assumptions for training juniors U18. I think we covered some of that, but really it comes down to the specific player. I don't like to make too many broad generalizations or assumptions vis-a-vis uh, -vis training girls versus boys because I think it's very player specific. You know, there are some uh, girls who you might train more like a boy and there are some boys who you might train a little more like a girl, quote-unquote. So for me, it's the individual. You want to train the individual, but in general, those are typically the priorities for kids who are uh, between uh, 16 to 18, transitioning to pro or college tennis. I hope that helps. Send me follow-up so I can answer you in a more specific way because the question is, is very, uh, very general. 
and I'm not sure how to answer you best. I would like to answer your question to the best of my ability. But thank you so much for for uh, sharing and your question. And it's great to have questions to to for this for our mailbox segment. You know, it's fun to to get the questions and. And when we have the show live, if you can get on live, we can actually discuss and debate live. Uh, next time, feel free to do that. So the other question we had in the mailbox this week was from um, my buddy, uh, my uh, a coach, a coach friend of mine, actually a guy who I I, I trained for a long for a long time. I mentored him, and he had a question about footwork, uh, the reverse pivot or the back foot pivot on the forehand vis-a-vis the backhand. And he was asking me, you know, why shouldn't you pivot the same way that you do with a, a, a defensive forehand as you would with the backhand? And we were talking about some of the footwork moves of David Bailey, who I'm a big fan of David Bailey's work. He's a footwork expert. If you guys have a chance to study David Bailey's footwork method, it's very comprehensive and good. But the the differences on the on the and the, specifically, he asked me about the one-handed backhand. And when you when you move backward defensively on the one-handed backhand, typically you you don't pivot the back foot as much as you would on uh, moving defensively on a, on a forehand because the forehand re- has more hip and shoulder rotation. So that's the bottom line. The reason why you're pivoting the back foot defensively in in the, the on the on the forehand is so that you can rotate the body better. And on the one-handed backhand in particular. There's a lot less upper body rotation. There is more rotation than maybe in the past on the one-hander, but it's certainly not as much as the the shoulder and hip rotation you'd see in in a a modern forehand, for example. So when you're moving backwards diagonally or defensively and you need to do like a hop step backwards or a reverse movement, um, there's less of a pivot with the back leg on the one-handed back end than there is with the forehand. And sometimes the forehand has a, a very extreme pivot, and sometimes you leave the ground in, in a full reverse pivot. So that was the uh, technical question. Thank you, my amigo, for sending it in. And we were messaging about that earlier today, so I just thought I'd share it on the show uh, for anyone else who's interested. But, you know, the, the one-handed backhand, you typically stay a little more sideways when you're moving backwards. The upper body rotates well uh, without having to rotate the, the back foot. But on the forehand, contrarily, when you're moving backwards defensively, it's, it pays to pivot that back foot so you can get more uh, full body rotation. So that's sort of the difference there, guys. Thank you so much for all the waves we had. Uh, if, you were, if you stuck with me this long, you guys, you guys deserve a medal. You're amazing. Uh, it was a cool show. I, I had a request to do the show on Wayne Bryan's letter from uh, Fan. Uh, who listens to the the podcast and and or maybe watches the YouTube show? So I said, you know, that's a great idea. Let's go through it point by point because there are a lot of really good points. Some points that I agree with, some points that I don't. And it would be interesting to compare and contrast uh, viewpoints. And it, I think it did make for a great show, great discussion. And guys, if you're listening to this after the live broadcast is is completed. Like if you're listening to the podcast or on one of our replays, if you if something jumps out at you that's interesting, send me an email or send me a message, and I would be interested in knowing your thoughts on all of the bullet points that we that or the number of points that we covered tonight because uh, a lot of interesting topics and 
And uh, I think I'm always curious as to where uh, different stakeholders in the tennis industry uh, come down in terms of their perspective on all those issues. So let me know if you have an interesting viewpoint. Please share it with me over the coming week. And I will see you guys on the next program. We should be good for next week. We already have the topic at hand. I won't reveal it yet, but it is going to be another hot topic in junior development. I plan it out for you guys. Let's see what's coming up on the horizon. We have a, a workshop. I'm hosting a workshop on February 17th at my club in Vermont, in Londonderry, Vermont. So it's at the Chris Lewitt Tennis Academy, Vermont. It's an all-day footwork and movement workshop. So it's for parents, players, and coaches. We usually have a lot of coaches who come up for that. And we have a lot of players who join in too. So if you're around on February 17th, that's coming up real soon. Uh, pretty exciting. It should be a great workshop. I'm hoping to film it live and and sh and share it with you guys on the the online uh, our online site, which is clta.teachable.com. That's our online uh, digital platform uh, for the academy. And also, I'm excited that the, the 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 on the Teachable platform we are going to have. Pretty soon, the, the last workshop that we did is going to go live on, on Teachable. And so you can go online and, and take the workshop that we did. We did a workshop on the kick service called Keys to the Kick. I know a lot of people struggle with the kick serve. A lot of coaches are not sure how to teach it safely. And that's a serve that I have a lot of expertise and experience in teaching. So we had a wonderful workshop in December on the kick serve and we were able to film that professionally, and it's going to be going up soon. We have all the videos done. The, the, the sound is great, and we'll be putting that together into a course that you, you can purchase for a small fee. It's not very expensive. I think we're going to price it at maybe $39 or so, and you can get the entire workshop as if you were there with me live. I think it, that's a really cool resource if you have questions, if you're interested in the kick serve and the, the technique of the kick serve and we also had a really good segment in that workshop on injury prevention and how to teach the kick serve safely. So I know a lot of my students and parents have told me that there's a lot of misinformation on YouTube regarding the kick serve, a lot of bad advice. So I would just caution you, be careful who you trust on YouTube, what videos you follow, because there unfortunately is a lot of... Um, uh, I would say shady, shady coaching tips and uh, definitely advice that you find on some of those videos that are, are uh, that is not not based on sports science and not very accurate, not very effective. So be careful with who who you trust on YouTube, guys. And if you you want to pay thirty nine bucks to get you know good, solid, legit information, you know do do that. You know that's not that's not a huge price to pay. What else is going on for me? We, we're busy with our summer camp. So if you're around this summer, if you've got a, a serious tennis player, high-performance tennis player, come to our high-performance camp. It's going to be in the mountains of Vermont. It's our fourth year. It's at my club, which is dedicated to the juniors. So we, we own the land and the facility. It's completely dedicated to high-performance in the summer. I've got a wonderful professional trainer, uh, strength and conditioning coach who I've worked with in past summers. He's coming back. He's uh, training for the Olympic 400-meter hurdles. 
and he's just wonderful with the children. So we have a really professional training, serious fitness training in the summer, which is really hard to find in most summer camps. Most summer camps water down their fitness. We have a very professional trainer who I handpick, who works alongside me. I work with all the players personally in the camp. So I just think it's a really special camp, very high quality and very, very physically demanding and physically focused. We try to develop better athletes. And of course, we use uh, a lot of the system that, that I, I, I learned in Spain as the basis for our methodology. I have to give a shout out to, my, to the team at Bruguera. Muguruza's playing in the finals. Uh, Muguruza is uh, Spanish trained and she developed her game at the Bruguera Academy in Barcelona. So I'm very excited to see if she can pick up another Grand Slam. It's always going to be good for Spanish tennis when Muguruza's winning. Unfortunately, Rafa lost. I'm a little sad. But who do I root for? Muguruza against an American girl, Sofia Kennan. I want the American to win, but I also want Muguruza to win because we have a close connection with the Bruguera Academy in Barcelona. So I don't know. I guess I have to root for both, but I'm, I wanted to uh, shout out to my friends at Bruguera. They spent many, many years developing um, Garbine. And she's in another Grand Slam final. It's really fantastic for Luis Bruguer and the whole team there that developed her. So, guys, I will say goodbye for now. Have a good night. God bless. We'll see you on the next program. Adios. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Vamos!